This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. At KPMG, our people make the difference. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG. Make the difference. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. Hello. Today I'm talking to Michelle Ashamemri, a special advisor to the Saudi Space Commission and Vice President for Diversity Initiatives at the International Aeronautical Federation. She's an aerospace engineer, entrepreneur, and started her own rocket company at the age of just 26. So, Michelle, tell me, how did you first become interested in space? I started getting interested in space when I was about six years old. My mom took me to the Aneza Desert in Saudi Arabia. And I looked up, uh, obviously, at night. And I looked up to the sky and saw there was no light pollution. There was a really high density of stars. You could even make out the Milky Way. And I became very curious uh, because I didn't understand why some stars flickered differently than others. Some didn't flicker. They had a steady light. Others flickered why some were brighter than others, why the, the colors were a little bit different. Some shone blue, some were red. So I had a lot of questions and I kept asking my family, like, what is this stuff up there? I know that we call them stars, but what are they made out of? What, what does it mean? Why is this in this position? And I never got enough answers, right? Because obviously n- no one in my family was uh, uh, equipped to answer these questions, especially they were deeper. So I figured, well, the best way to understand this stuff is to go into space. And the only way you can go into space is to make rockets. And so I decided since then that I need to make rockets to take me to space so that I can understand what's up there. And that's exactly how my career path was uh, chosen. And I said at the beginning that you, you started your own rocket company when you were only 26 years old. How did that come about? Yeah, so... Obviously, when I went to school, I went as an aerospace engineer, studied aerospace engineering in my bachelor's, and then uh, uh, as well as math, mathematics, applied mathematics. So I had two degrees there. Then I did my master's in aerospace engineering, specifically focused on how to take humans to Mars using nuclear thermal rockets. So designing a nuclear thermal rocket for Mars missions for NASA Marshall Space Flight Center, who essentially funded my master's. And then right after my master's, I wanted to do a PhD, but life happened and I had to start working. So I worked for the industry for some time and then I left and then decided to start my own company because at the time there was a recession that trickled down to the aerospace industry. So a lot of the aerospace companies were laying off people rather than hiring. So I had an option, either sit and wait until the market is good enough for them to start hiring or start my own. So then I decided to start my own. I realized that there's a gap in the market 
that the small satellites are expanding so much, but there is no means for them to fly directly because they generally fly as secondary or tertiary payloads, or they have to essentially launch the entire constellation with a launch provider because most of them can carry really large payloads. So they have this issue of not getting manifested early enough. So some of them actually have to wait three years before they get launched. Uh, the cost is significant, and some of them are willing to pay three times as much as they're paying as secondary and tertiary payloads just to get launched as a primary. When, uh, so they have a say when they launch, how they launch, and where they launch to, as opposed to piggybacking on larger payloads. So I figured that market needed to be addressed, and that's how I started the Michelle Aerospace, focused on developing launch vehicles that tackle that market, providing a service to launch them into low Earth orbit. Um, would you say now that that sort of market, because now it seems to be that we have new launch companies popping up every five minutes, would you say that that sort of market's now stabilized out a bit? I don't want to say stabilized because <laughs> the market, the 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 what the viability of small launch vehicles that target the small satellite market is still out there. So is it a commercially viable rocket business? Is it you know can you make your business solely focused on the launch of small satellites. Most of the companies that have succeeded in this area are moving into larger payload capacities. So it remains to be seen really how that plays out still. There are people that are completely believe that small uh, vehicles are useless and some people that feel that actually, no, they do serve a purpose. Uh, and they, it remains to be seen how they will allow the market to essentially get bigger. So there's two schools of thought. I think the conclusion is not there yet. Mm -hmm. And in Saudi generally as a nation, do they have a lot of launch capability at the moment or are they still sort of more reliant on, on other nations to, to launch satellites and even people? So currently, no. As you know, the Saudi Space Commission was established in 2018. And so this capability is not available in Saudi currently. Mm -hmm ebay motors is here for the ride with over 122 million parts you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly brake kits led headlights bumpers whatever your baby needs ebay motors has it and with ebay guaranteed fit it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time plus at these prices you're burning rubber not cash keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply and you said earlier that you did your master's research on human spaceflight to Mars. Is human spaceflight an area that you have a lot of interest in as well? Absolutely, because it's exploration based. But it's so the, just to be clear, my research focus was not on the human element, but rather developing the vehicle itself, which is focused on nu using nuclear thermal propulsion as a means to accelerate the time it takes for you to get to Mars when Mars and Earth are at the closest trajectory. So in other words, uh, nuclear thermal rockets uh, are twice as efficient as chemical rockets. Chemical rockets is what you're used to seeing uh, with the launches that you see today. But uh, nuclear thermal rockets, essentially, because they are twice as efficient, they can enable faster, uh, given Earth and Mars are at the closest, they enable you to get there uh, sooner than a chemical rocket. Mm -hmm. You also have uh, ties to the Saudi Space Commission, and they recently, as we're filming this, 
launched uh, or the Axiom 2 mission returned, which sent two Saudi mission specialists into space. Could you tell us a bit about what that mission actually was and, and how it happened? Yes, it's the inaugural mission for Saudi Arabia for human spaceflight program. Uh, the human spaceflight program is part of our overall national space strategy for exploration. The purpose of this sort of mission is scientific. So the idea is we want to contribute to science, which benefits all of humanity. So with this mission, there were uh, 14 experiments, uh, 11 of which are scientific experiments that are led by uh, principal investigator, principal investigators and entities that are local in Saudi, and three experiments that are mainly focused on outreach. Uh, what that means is essentially having experiments in which the astronauts will perform in space, but in real time, students on the ground will be performing it uh, and then doing a, uh, a comparison between the results they have on the ground with the astronauts uh, during a live event, which I'm sure you've seen a live event between the astronauts and the kids on the ground. Uh, so the idea there is in doing something like this, you excite kids, you get them interested in space, you allow them to have critical thinking, uh, to get inspired, and to believe that they can be the astronauts of the future. And it was done uh, using the Axiom Company, which is a private spaceflight company that helps people put on their own space missions. How has the sort of growth of private space companies from within Saudi or without helped grow small um, space agencies' plans? I think... So what we've seen, the transition from, you know, everything uh, being essentially uh, contractors for governments and, and so forth, the transition from uh, to the private industry and the aggregation of commercial uh, space companies, because they could be satellites, they could be rockets, they could be uh, service providers of any kind, that openness to... Uh, essentially, whether it's private or whether it's a, a commercial product that can be used for civil purposes, has actually enhanced collaborations in the space sector and has um, impacted the essentially the products that you would get out of space. When I say products, whether it's research, whether it's a technology, whether it's emerging space technologies and so forth. So it has facilitated and, and it grew and it will continue to grow and it to me, the impact of that on a global scale is that you see more and more uh, companies being interested because the doors are open to them to collaborate with the private entities uh, for civil purposes. And how important is the space program in Saudi Arabia? It's very critical for <laughs> us. Uh, as you know, the space market is growing and it's going to continue to grow. The cislunar market, which is essentially uh, cislunar is the space between Earth and the moon, that's going to grow tremendously in the next decade or two. So everybody wants to be a player there because there's a lot to gain, whether scientifically on a collaborative uh, effort as well uh, for large missions to explore, even for uh, use of resources in space and for space domain awareness as well. Mm -hmm. And so the goals of the Saudi Space Commission, is it more to become a bigger player in the space market or is it a more scientific goal that they have in mind? I think they're both pegged together. Uh, the higher achievements in science will enable you to be a space player because that contribution benefits everybody else. So I think it's definitely both. 
And Axiom 2, as you said, had a big outreach component to it. Has there been a, a strong response from the public in Saudi Arabia to seeing their countrymen go into the into space? So uh, when you say the outreach component, are you referencing the experimental outreach that I was ref- talking about? Yes. Okay. So that that's actually our experimental outreach that we developed. So mm-hmm. those experiments were specifically designed uh, to engage Saudi students to get critical thinking. Uh, essentially, the three experiments were liquid fireworks, which gives the students the ability to visualize how liquids behave and essentially how polarity will uh, affect the motion of liquids in space and on the ground. The second experiment is called Space Kite, which essentially examines the effect of microgravity on the aerodynamic behavior inside the International Space Station and compares that to on the ground. Obviously, once you're in uh, space external to the International Space Station, there's no air, so therefore there's no aerodynamics. But the purpose of this experiment was essentially to juxtapose it does microgravity have an effect on the behavior of that kite in comparison to the ground uh, from a essentially qualitative perspective? How does the kite behave and how does it fly in comparison to the ground? And the third experiment was focused on heat transfer. Uh, essentially, we wanted to showcase to the students that heat transfer in space is very different than on the ground because you only have one mode of heat transfer in the external environment in space, which is radiation which is slower than having three modes of heat transfer. And the idea there is that the students compare their results on the ground by having a heated element reach 40 degrees, and then they measure how long it takes to get to 40 degrees and then how long it takes to cool down and compare that dissipation rate to what's uh, in space, which we had an apparatus developed that's enclosed so and, and it has a vacuum when it heats up and when it cools down to mimic the external environment of space. And so they compare the two and understand the effects of having one mode of heat transfer radiation versus on the ground and the implication of that in the design of spacecraft. And on the Axiom 2 space mission, you also had the first female astronaut, Rayana Banawi. How important was that moment of sending the first female astronaut from Saudi Arabia? It's a very important moment because it's a historical moment. We sent two astronauts at the same time, the first female and the first male to ISS. Uh, So it's an inspirational moment. It's a historical moment uh, for Saudis. So it it actually has a very high impact because, you know, kids are going to see her uh, and see Ali and, and, and think like, oh, if they can do it, I can do it too. This is someone that looks like me, talks like me, and if they can do it, I can definitely do it. And so it inspires them, absolutely. So it's a very critical uh, achievement. Mm-hmm. And obviously you are the, uh, a female founder of a space company. We've got the first female uh, astronaut. How much of a role do women play in the space program within Saudi Arabia? Uh, obviously a critical role. <laughs> uh, as you can see, in, in my case, I'm an advisor given my experience and also because uh, I am the first female aerospace engineer in the entire GCC. Uh, my focus areas are uh, essentially uh, at the heart of aerospace and the space sector. So, and I'm advising uh, the Saudi Space Commission on, you know, the national space strategy and other uh, initiatives. So clearly, it's uh, an equal opportunity 
uh, and and that's going to grow from here on out. Having the first female and and first male is critical on the on that first inaugural mission since a while because Saudis this is not Saudi's uh, first time in space. So uh, as you know, uh, in 1985, Saudi went to space with uh, His Royal Highness's trip uh, on the space shuttle. Uh, His Royal Highness Prince Sultan bin Salman, um, and then. Uh, with the AX2 mission, this is an inaugural mission for a sustainable human spaceflight program that is intended to benefit science for all humanity. So uh, uh, the idea is from here on out, I mean, Saudi, as you know and heard, there's a lot of changes in Saudi. So the role of women in space, the role of women in technology, the role of women in uh, pretty much every sector you can think of um, is essentially growing and is going to continue to grow. Another position that you have is as Vice President for Diversity Initiatives at the International Aeronautical Federation. What does that role entail? Uh, Yes. So my goal there is to try to look, the space sector, unfortunately, is still plagued with very low equality numbers, whether on a geographic level, gender or um, generation. So this is what we call the three Gs, uh, generation, geography and gender, specifically on gender. It's pretty low still. So if you take it across the board, the numbers are lower. So my goal is to try to entice members of the IAF to become more transparent with their numbers only from an informational standpoint, such that they can set KPIs in order to achieve and push them and incentivize them to get higher and higher numbers every year. Uh, Because what I've noticed, at least from my experience in the industry, there's two issues. There's an issue in entry into the space sector for, for women. And then there is an issue of retention in the space sector for women. So you could potentially have a higher influx of women entering the space sector, but then a bunch of those women decide to leave the space sector somewhere along the line for whatever reason. Uh, it could be a personal reason. It could be an environmental reason. When I say environmental, I mean environmental to the space sector itself. Like the work environment may be not Uh, great for them and they feel like I don't want to do this anymore and they leave. So we have to understand why this happened in order for us to correct it and in order for us to share this information with global companies and say, okay, your numbers, it seems across the board, this is the issue. So we need to address those issues. But also, this is where you're at. This is where you want to be. So how do you bridge that gap? I need you to commit in the next three to five years to these KPIs. And then every year when we meet at the IAC, we would discuss those results. And uh, essentially, the, the co- company or organization or entities that reach those goals or KPIs, they should be awarded for their efforts in pushing uh, that agenda, which is the 3G uh, plus agenda. And do you think generally most companies and aid space agencies are moving in the right direction on those fronts? I think some try and fail, and some try, and some don't even try. So there's a whole spectrum, and it really depends on, you know, the culture in that uh, organization, the the environment, because maybe they get, as I mentioned, it's an issue of entry and retention that you, you, you need to look at. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I, to me, the numbers speak louder than anything. If there's a lot of work, then over the past 10 years, we should see some progress. But what's interesting, in some some years, you'll see a lower number than 
the year before, which is interesting to me. So either people are leaving or the numbers are increasing, but the female number is still the same. So all these play a role. I think we definitely, all of us have a responsibility in the space sector to push for that. Mm-hmm. So I'm not blaming anyone. We all are responsible to push that and, and get it to a higher number, to encourage young women to get into the aerospace sector, to provide them in an environment that they feel safe in, that they feel that they are welcome, that they feel that they can grow in. Those are three critical elements to exist for people to flourish in a sector. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly sounds like you're you're pushing towards a more inclusive future in, in Saudi and space flight in general. Is there anything coming up in the next couple of years that you're you're particularly excited about or looking forward to? I'm I'm really looking forward to the different changes. I'm looking forward to essentially collaborating with international entities. There's a lot of initiatives that are going to come out from Saudi uh, that will be very exciting. So we have a, a long road ahead, but it's an exciting one where uh, we're, I'm looking forward to it. Well, Michelle, it definitely sounds like there's a lot of very exciting things going on uh, in Saudi Arabia at the moment in space. So thank you very much for taking the time out of your day to talk to us about them all. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy Podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or head to Acast, iTunes or Spotify. Spotify.